Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the afternoon seminar. I know you rather dull and rainy uh, afternoon. Um, I'm delighted this afternoon to welcome uh, Dyer Tusu from the University of Westminster, where he is Professor of Global Communication and Co-Director of the Indian Media Centre. Uh, Dyer is somebody who started his working life uh, as a journalist, moved into academia, has written extensively about uh, globalised media, particularly about Indian media, and today he's going to be, as you can see, talking to us about whether or not the BRIC countries are effectively building a new world order, something that's derived from his new book, uh, which he's co-authored, leaflets around here, if uh, it takes your fancy, you can find out more details. So, uh, Dyer, you're very welcome. Over to you. Thank you, Richard, and um, thank you, James, for inviting me. It's always a pleasure to come to Oxford um, and talk to journalists from all over the world. Um, but today's topic is not so much about journalism, although I will touch on journalism, but I want to actually focus on something bigger in terms of media order, world media order. Is there a new order in the making? And in that big countries, uh, our focus in today's lecture is our presentation is on, on BRICS, uh, how they are shaping that order. Um, this is really a summary of um, a chapter that appears in this book called Mapping BRICS Media, which um, I wrote, I called it BRICS Building Navaco 2.0. Um, Navaco, for some of you, may be an odd acronym, but Navaco is um, short for New World Information and Communication Order, which was a major debate in the 1970s and 80s, um, largely within UNESCO, and it was about the news flow. So, um, my chapter is really about how in this new digital world a new world media order is emerging um, and BRICS are central to that. Now the book emerged from a major project which is based in the University of Tampere in uh, Finland. Um, uh, it's a project funded by the Finnish Academy, and uh, this is the first of four books, the three more to come. In fact, the next one, I'm not involved in it, but colleagues are, is specifically about journalism. Uh, they've done extensive research in all these five countries, and they're going to look at how journalists actually operate in, in very different media systems. Um, now, BRICS is a... Um, acronym which was actually, as you probably know, uh, coined by um, Jim O'Neill, who was at that time working for um, Goldman Sachs and currently is a minister in Cameroon's government. Um, it was initially BRIC, and South Africa was added in 2011. Um, on Chinese um, ad advice or pressure or choose your words, what you want to say, but there was Chinese influence. They wanted Africa represented within this um, group of nations. Um, 
They've been meeting annually since 2009. And the last summit was uh, in July in Russia. The next one is in, in Delhi next year. So it's something more than just an acronym, acronym now. Um, and although these are very different countries in terms of their histories, their political systems, their media systems, uh, their levels of development, the, the Chinese economy, for example, is five times bigger than the Indian economy. Um, but what distinguishes them from others is that they're all major non-Western countries. And that is important to keep in mind. Now, what I'll do in my talk is I'll look at different aspects of this BRICS constellation. Um, a, bit of, a bit of economics of it, its cultural power, um, and I'll end with some reflections on the digital BRICS, what's happening to the internet. <coughs> that is perhaps the most significant change. So if you start with um, the economics of it, um, in terms of purchasing power parity, and I put US there, I know US is not in BRICS, but just by way of comparison. Um, in terms of purchasing power parity, now, China and India of the two of the, uh, and Brazil are uh, uh, sorry. China, as you can see in this chart, the difference between S South Africa and China in terms of their GDP is enormous. They're, they're not really comparable. Um, but IMF was saying this is two years ago that by 2018. China will surpass the United States as the largest economy in, P uh, in PPP terms. In fact, it happened last year. And if we look at um, the situation today, um, these are this is the latest data from IMF. Um, top five GDPs in terms of purchasing power parity. I should emphasize that um, is China, United States, India, Japan, and Germany. So something interesting is happening in terms of economic power. But we need to contextualize this in terms of global economic structures. So this is some data, again, very, very latest July 2015 data. Um, it's a list of companies in Fortune 500. So obviously the domination is traditional in the sense that it's United States, it's Western Europe, and it is Japan. But look at that figure, 98 from China. So China is now the second largest presence in global Fortune 500. Um, the other BRICS countries are relatively insignificant. South Africa doesn't appear in the, in the top 500. But China is, as you see, sufficiently significant and growing. Overall, if you look at the BRICS TNCs, they've grown from 27 in 2005 to 
117 in 2015, and out of that 98 are from China. Now it's also important to remind ourselves that Chinese entry into Fortune 500 is a relatively recent phenomenon. If you go back, the data is available on Fortune magazine's website. Um, you know, they were not there. It's not, it was traditionally dominated by United States, Western Europe, and Japan. But look at more recent times. The shift is remarkable. So from 10 in 2000 to 98 in 2015. And every five years, the numbers have doubled. Now, just to say, these are figures from a very well-known American business magazine. These are not figures from Chinese government. Okay. Um, and of course, the way TNCs work in contemporary world uh, is more complicated. So that it might be a Japanese company, funding might be coming from Saudi Arabia or Brazil or India, whatever. Um, but you get a trend that is very clear, that there is ascending China and descending United States from 179 to 128. Um, I mention that because I think China is central to the whole BRICS project. Although the idea originally came from Russia, but it was China which appropriated it for its own geopolitical agenda. To suggest to the world, look, we are not the only country rising. There are all these other big countries rising with us. So don't, don't feel threatened. And China's rise is well documented. Uh, I'm not an economist, but I've just given you some basic data to remind you uh, that something interesting is happening in the world of global finance. Um, only two weeks ago, the Chinese president was here and announced something as big as $40 billion worth, pounds, sorry, worth of investment. If you contrast that, how much investment British government is able to, or British companies are able to do in, the United, in, in, in China, uh, the point is made. Um, uh, if you look at the you know, Chinese trade around the world, uh, this is from a very recent issue of The Economist, um, there are certain countries where merchandise trade is over 40% of that is with China. For example, um, Angola, uh, Turkmenistan, Burma, Mongolia, etc. And other countries like Australia uh, and Chile, um, up to 40%, 20 to 40% trade. Some scholars and commentators are now describing Africa as China's second continent. There's a book with that title recently published. There's also interesting economic exchange taking place. The most prominent example of that was last year's gas deal between Russia and China, uh, which uh, some estimates say would be $400 billion. It's the largest deal of its kind. And neither Brussels nor Washington has any influence on it. It's a decision made in Moscow and Beijing. China is also doing something very interesting in terms of connecting Asia with Europe. And this major project called Belt and Road Project, um, which has, the idea is to revive the Silk Route 
um, both land route and a maritime route. Um, and a huge amount of investment is already planned. This is a very ambitious project. Um, and to support it, there are also institutional structures being put in place. Uh, for example, this year, uh, a BRICS bank was formally launched in Shanghai. Um, and the Chinese have also launched uh, AIIB, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, so you could argue that something akin to the West, uh, the, the, the Britain Wood system is under construction. Of course, sitting in London or Oxford, we might not think very much of it. Although Britain, Germany, France, queuing up to join this bank against explicit opposition from Washington. Um, and of course, Japanese were very concerned because Japan dominated Asian flow, financial flows. You know, the Asian Development Bank was essentially a Japanese project. So. That's the kind of economic picture within which we should um, look at the BRICS phenomena. The primacy of China is, um, at least in my view, without any doubt. And despite recent turmoil in currency, um, declining growth rate is still 6% plus. Uh, you know, <laughs> Greece will give their right arm to get that sort of um, growth rate. There is something significant happening in economic terms. But BRICS are also important military powers. I mean, Russia is still sitting with the largest number of nuclear weapons on this planet. Chinese investment in defense is huge. India is the largest importer of arms, although it also has the largest number of poor people in, in that country. That's a different debate. But there's also, uh, and again, it, it pales into insignificance when you, when you compare it to what the United States spends on defense. But there is some interesting shift there also in terms of uh, as, as a military power. There's also a, a cultural dimension to it. Um, cultural power, soft power, media power. So if you think of South Africa, for example, South Africa is arguably the most important media and communication presence in that continent. Although Nigeria has a big film industry, Nigeria has, um, you know, resources, but in terms of pan-African presence, South Africa, I think, is the streets ahead. Um, if you look at Brazil, of course, um, has been for many years a major producer of entertainment. Um, Telenovelas from Brazil uh, circulate around the world. More than 100 countries import. Um, TV Globo, a global <coughs> corporation, in, is one of the top media companies in the world. Uh, not quite in the top 10, but pretty significant. And it is particularly um, dominant in the Lusophone world, 
Um, and it's an interesting case of, uh, if you look at the media consumption patterns in, in Portugal and Brazil and see you know, how many Portuguese are watching uh, Brazilian programs and how many <coughs> Brazilians are watching Portuguese programs. And it's kind of, some people have called it a reverse case of cultural imperialism. And Brazil also has some interesting ideas about how the internet should be governed. They've come out some very uh, original, interesting ideas. I'll come to that in a minute. In terms of entertainment media, of course, um, <coughs> India, of the, of the five BRICS countries, perhaps has the most uh, well-established uh, entertainment industry. The first feature film was made in 1913. They've been exporting films since 1930s, even when it was a British colony. Um, and as you see, they've been in different languages in different parts of the world, from um, Russia to, to the Arab world to China. Um, it is arguably um, one of the most visible non-Western entertainment around the world. So in terms of entertainment, BRICS have some interesting uh, resources. But that doesn't worry a lot of people. Economics worries, but you know, this is soft stuff. It doesn't worry people in the West and elsewhere. What worries them is what's happening in the sphere of news. And particularly worrisome is um, this RT, which um, Incidentally, this year um, um, is marking its 10th anniversary. And to mark that, um, they're going to have Larry King, who used to be CNN chap. Uh, he does a program for them in, in uh, America. They have an America-specific channel. Um, they're going to bring that program to London. They have a big operation in London, too. And also in Chinese and, and um, Arabic. Uh, and in um, German. Their tagline is question more. And this was a, a series of ads they put across last year, uh, across London and other cities, um, about the limitations of what passes for global news in terms of its perspective and politics. And as you see, Actually, everything they're saying there is factually correct. Now, I teach global media. That's my job. And as somebody who grew up in a non-aligned country, I benefit from having access to a slightly different perspective than what the BBC or CNN is giving me. For example, on Ukraine, that there is another story about eastward expansion of NATO, which often gets neglected in Western media. In RT, that is the main story. So if you're watching both, you can judge. You. I have a PhD in international relations, so I can judge, you know, where is it coming from. Um, more recently, Syria uh, is, is a fascinating. I, I wish I had more politically engaged students to do a PhD on it. It's a fantastic topic about how it is framed and how that is actually creating lots of problems for um, various policy networks. Um, I had the privilege to be at um, the launch of um, 
Deutsche Welle News in June this year. Um, Deutsche Welle is a German network, as you know. Um, they have an annual uh, global media forum in Bonn, and I was fortunate enough to be invited and I was there. And Deutsche Welle has already been circulating around the world for a long time, but now they have a dedicated English language news channel. It was launched this June. And at that launch, which is a very high-profile event, a German foreign minister was there. RT appeared quite a lot in the discussion, that people are watching this other channel, and we need, Germany needs to have its voice, especially in relation to Europe and Ukraine. Now, it, I don't know how familiar you are with this. It's very easy to dismiss it as a Putin um, kind of propaganda channel. But if you go into more detail, you'll find actually there's a lot more happening there than just propaganda. And because they're doing it in English, which is the language of global communication and perhaps more importantly global media, it is apparently receiving a lot of interest, particularly on YouTube. It claims to be the most watched 24-7 news channel on YouTube. And it is essentially taking a contraposition to the dominant Western discourse, unabashedly, un and, and not particularly in a subtle manner. <laughs> Unlike the Russians, um, the other BRICS presence in television is Chinese Ch television news. And um, they seem to have a very different position, different policy. The policy is not to criticize anybody. Be as bland as you possibly can. Now, as you see, they are all over the place. They have a, a US operation, they have a Spanish operation, they have an Arabic, French, Russian, and most significantly, they are in Africa. And there, they are not just providing news, they're also providing infrastructure, you know, satellite connectivity, um, feed, you know, Xinhua feed, for example. And they are reformulating journalism. The phrase, you know, I was fortunate enough to attend two conferences of China in Africa last year in, in, in Beijing uh, and in Nimbo, um, and a couple of books are coming based on that conference. Um, and the, the discussion was about what was described as constructive journalism. Then we don't need to criticize anybody. Right? Now, this is part of a much bigger project, the so-called going out project, um, which some estimates say is something in the range of $7 billion, <coughs> which includes the, you know, the whole range of external communication. News is just part of that. And the plans are uh, early, early next year to have a major expansion in London. Uh, I'm sure a lot of our students will benefit because they have English and they have, they have uh, Mandarin. Um, and as China's investment grows, I showed you earlier that map. Remember the map of trade around the world? 
Chinese media's interest will go, grow in these areas. Why is, why, is, why is British media so global? It's not that somehow people like what happens in you know, India or in Australia. There's a historical connection. Um, so it's interesting to see how that maps out, those early days. But uh, CCTV Africa was only launched in 2012, right? And it's already making waves. Not from London, if you look at London, no, but if you're in uh, Kenya, in, you know, it's providing you a discourse which is very different from Western discourse. And they're providing you money. Although, unlike RT, which has ruffled many feathers in Brussels and in Washington and London, to the extent that some say, you know, this is, you know, in this country, for example, they're saying, you know, this violates off-palm, you know, rules and, and about partial, you know, impartiality, etc. Um, in the U.S., the person who was head of um, broadcasting board of governors, in fact, in fact, compared RT with extreme, uh, you know, terrorist groups in the Middle East. Um, so it has evoked a reaction. It has because it's taken a, a, a consciously contrarian position and consistently followed that up. CCTV, you know, I, as I said, I study these things in some detail. I'm still waiting for a story that CCTV has broken, which was picked up by anyone else, any blogger, any news magazine, anywhere. That hasn't happened yet, right? Because they're not in that game. They're not in that game. They're not in, that, in the game of making money. You know, if, if the Chinese government tomorrow was, was to say that we can stop funding, all these will close. That's not the point. The point is this is part of a much bigger project. It's part of a if you like, cultural diplomacy, soft power project. And there's a lot of money towards it. So you see as a kind of, uh, and it's interesting how, you know, RT covers Russia. Uh, or CCTV covers China. Um, it's, it's, it's like with very, very soft gloves. There is no problem there. Yeah? Uh, as against how, how RT covers um, US, for example. So something interesting is in the offing in terms of global television news. Of course, there are other players, Al Jazeera being one, and there are many more, but you know, I'm just focusing on um, the BRICS countries. But I think the most interesting change is not in this, because this also is now converging towards digital world, towards internet. Yeah? So as I mentioned for RT, um, the biggest audience is online, uh, not on television screens. So what's happening to the internet? I don't need to go into detail this audience about where it came from and how it evolved. Um, but just these figures are interesting. In 1995, 61% of internet users were Americans. By 2014, that number had shrunk 10%. Data is from ITU, it's not my data. It's just credible data. So, although internet emerged from US, it is still largely managed, governed, run by United States. All the big guys are without exception Americans, whether it's Google or Facebook or Yahoo or uh, Twitter or Amazon, they're all Americans. They don't pay a lot of tax, as we know, because they operate in ether. But internet itself is changing. The users are changing. 
And that's significant. If you combine that with what I was saying earlier in terms of the economic shift. So if you look at the, um, who are the users today, the largest number is in Asia, precisely because if you just take India and China, that's 40% of the world's population. You can forget the rest of the world. That's 40%. So nearly 48% is Asia. And of course, BRICS and within that, China and India are very important in that, in terms of numbers. This is even more interesting. The latest data. Today, the largest number of internet users are in China, followed by India, then the United States, then Japan, and then Brazil. That's just sheer numbers. That's not super odd figure. But look at the, the last um, column there. Look at the growth in percentage terms. Nearly 7,000% in last 15 years in case of India. Um, nearly 3,000% in case of China. Nearly, well, 2,253 in case of Japan. Sorry, Brazil. Contrast that with the US and Japan. Now look at the middle column. Half the population in China is online as of now. That means 700 million people or 650 million people are not online. 28% in India, uh, again, huge number is not online. Just spare a moment and think what will happen if this 28 becomes 82? Which will happen in the next 10 years, if not sooner? And then it, the China becomes 100%. That may have happened even less than 10 years. What kind of internet will that be? I think the Indian case is particularly interesting um, because of <coughs> a convergence between the most pro-business government in China, India's history and a very kind of committed corporate groups who want to bring internet to every village, not for any altruist uh, notions, just for making for making money. Um, here you see um, the Prime Minister of India, Mr. Modi, hugging lovingly um, Mr. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg. And that was in September, and that was in the headquarters of um, Facebook in California. And down there, he had a big event with all these top people, two of these guys, um, Satya and um, Sundar. Um, one heads Google, the other heads um, Microsoft. Both of them had their first degrees in India. Um, the government is launching, has already launched this digital media project, digital India project, which um, is an $18 billion project. When it was launched uh, in July, I think it was, the corporate, Indian corporates, earmarked $71 billion for broadband connectivity, because it's appalling. The structure, the infrastructure is very, very poor. So, that's actually a small amount because the need is so vast. Um, and Geo here at the bottom is the company which is part of Reliance, which is a major conglomerate. In fact, the person who owns it is among the top, uh, top five richest people in the world. 
Um, and he's investing heavily in broadband. So there's an interesting convergence between government project, so-called Digital India project, there is corporate money, both domestic and international. So if you were Mr. Zuckerberg, you know, in China you can't operate. Uh, where would you go? India is a massive market. 150 million people are uh, on Facebook. Uh, there's a population of 1.2 billion people. And they use English widely. Um, in fact, the whole idea of internet.org, which is a Facebook project, um, is in parts of India very enthusiastically adopted because they think we don't need all this flashy stuff, we want basic internet access on the mobile. So something interesting is happening in this digital space. Um, and that also reflects in the way creative industries operate and circulate their, their, their material. Um, one of the things we found in this book that I mentioned at the very beginning was the intra-bricks flow of media content. And we found it was actually very limited because all big brick countries have, of course, a complex relationship between them. For example, China and India have, you know, border issues, Tibet, etc., etc. Um, but they all have a, a kind of equation with the United States in various ways, economic, cultural, political, etc. So within BRICS is very limited um, flow of, of, of content. But there is also interesting shift taking place. Um, for example, um, Indian cinema, which, was, which used to be quite big in, in China before globalization because they were not allowed to import Hollywood films, so Indian entertainment was what uh, kept people busy, as in Russia. But in recent years, since they opened up, and again, it's very, you know, it's very, um, there's a quota system, only a few films are allowed to, to be released. Um, you see an interesting trend emerging. Uh, films are actually being noticed, and these are not just, these are just box office figures. In fact, if you look at how people consume media today through, you know, on their mobiles or their digital um, kind of, equipment, whatever equipment it is, it, the figure is much bigger in terms of, you know, the, the viewership figure is much bigger. What's interesting, this last film called PK, which if you haven't seen, it's a fantastically com comical film, very, very good film, in fact. It was released in China in April this year to mark the visit of Indian Prime Minister there. And what was interesting was more prints were released in China than in India. And India, you know, Bollywood is big. It's a very, very big country. So there is something quite interesting happening there in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the flow of, of uh, media products within within big country. But, you know, it's early days. We don't know how it will um, map out. But um, the Indian internet is actually very interesting for other reasons, too. Uh, primarily two reasons, I would mention. And you can see that the growth has been um, quite remarkable. Uh, some estimates say that by 2020, um, some say even sooner, sooner there will be 600 million people using the internet in India, um, which still would mean half the population is not online. That means still 
700 million people or thereabouts will not be online. Now, the two reasons which are interesting and unique to India, uh, one is the diasporic dimension. The India has the largest English-speaking diaspora in the world. Uh, I showed you two examples of people at very, very important positions. Uh, so, so Modi is coming here next week, and I think there are 80,000 people who are going to be he's going to be addressing in Wembley Stadium in, in London. Um, so there's this huge diasporic audience scattered all over the world, world's largest English-speaking diaspora, increasingly using digital technologies. And the other is demographics. Uh, India has, uh, is a very, very young country, a very old civilization, but a very young country. Um, and Modi always kind of goes on uh, mentioning this fact that, you know, 65% of or thereabouts Indians are below the age of 35. Uh, that translates into 650 million people. Increasingly educated, increasingly mobile, increasingly um, proficient in a language which is used internationally. That is interesting in terms of what happens to the internet, English language internet, open internet. But in terms of um, electronic commerce and, and the, uh, you know, the, the kind of economic aspects of the internet, of course, China is um, very strong already. Uh, you're familiar with some of these names, Alibaba, when it was, uh, you know, uh, launched in New York Stock Exchange last year, it was one of the biggest um, launch ever, um, and in, also in mobile telephony, in, in computing, and in other social media, massive. Um, already, when internet is relatively new in, in, in both in India and China, um, out of the top 10 internet companies in terms of revenue, four are from China. So there's something quite interesting here. This is cyber capitalism with Chinese characteristics. You know, we had, we had kind of socialism with Chinese characteristics. Then somebody said, well, that's not correct. It's actually capitalism with Chinese characteristics. Now you have cyber capitalism with Chinese characteristics. And, um, you know, it, it's early days, but already four out of top 10. So something significant is happening which might challenge the, the Googleization of the globe. We'll, we'll see. But if you look at a bigger picture, if you combine all those threads, economic shift and military power and cultural power and internet and all that, um, and those of you who have read history um, would perhaps understand it better um, there is a very famous book by um, a Singaporean professor, his name is Kishore Mahbubani, and he talks about the return of Asia, not the rise of Asia. He says, go back in history and, you know, most of GDP in the world came from Asia. It didn't come from Europe. That's a much later story. So, um, the historical context is important. This is... Um, something which actually emphasizes that historical connection. This is from a book by Arvind Subramanian, who is currently the chief economic advisor to the Prime Minister of India. 
a very distinguished scholar in his own right. Um, and it looks at percentage share of global economic power weighted by share of world GDP trade and net capital exports. So Britain, Germany, France in 1870, US, Japan, and Germany in 1973, US, China, and Japan in 2010, and the forecast is China, US, and India. Um, so when we look at these shifts, one has to take a, a kind of bigger historical pick. That's not to suggest that you know it's all going to change in the next 20 years. Even these forecasts maybe have been optimistic. But something, what the Americans call the pivot, is shifting to Asia. And I think something is there in that, that formulation. Let me then end with my final comment so we can have some discussion. Are the BRICS then building a, a new world order? As I mentioned at the very beginning, um, the so-called new world information communication order debate was uh, located in a particular historical context. It was the Cold War context. It was seen as a third world ploy supported by the Soviets to control freedom of information. In fact, the US government had a very detailed discourse about you know, free flow of information doctrine. They left UNESCO, you know, and Britain followed suit, as it always does. And the debate was about news agencies. The debate was about distortions. It was a very narrow debate. And it was only very awkward because those people who were going on about imbalance and, and exploitation, they were often dictators, or, or you know, even Mrs. Gandhi, who was quite vocal at that time, was Prime Minister of India, and she had in fact imposed emergency and arrested top journalists, closed newspapers, and she used to go around the world and telling the journalists in the West and America that, you know, especially that, you know, you guys are distorting uh, our realities. But things have moved on. Things have moved on in the way I sort of outlined in my presentation. Um, in a digitized 24-7 global uh, networked society, uh, it, it's, a, it's a very different, very different ballgame. China was actually not party to that debate. China was too preoccupied with its own problems in the 70s. So is, is the BRICS building a new kind of world order? Just a, three points and I'll stop. Um, I showed you that example about Bollywood and China. My sense is that this kind of contra flow is going to grow in volume, but also eventually in value. At the moment, if you look at the overall picture, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of what sells around the world. But there, you know, BRICS, given their economic power, um, given the scale and, and scope of potential change, this is going to grow. Not so much in the West, it's important to keep that in mind, but in terms of south-south flow of news and entertainment and all that is going to grow. And if the internet, as I was suggesting, if 28 becomes 82, 
that means 82% of people using in India are using internet, that's 820 million people. And China has 100%. What kind of internet will that be? In which language? What kind of jokes will be circulating? What kind of, you know, uh, politics will be discussed? Who will be the celebrities? We've been conditioned to think of internet as an American phenomenon, understandably, it emerged there. And America remains very dominant player in, in anything to do with cyber issues. But if majority of the users are not Americans or Westerners, internet needs to be de-Americanized. And there's one of the biggest debate that's already happening and is likely to become more uh, interesting in coming decades is about internet governance. Who controls it? Why should my data be stored in a Finnish farmhouse? Right? Um, so that's going to be an interesting kind of issue in coming years. There's also a, a concern about what might be described as balkanization of the internet. So there's a Chinese internet, which is in Mandarin. It's cut off from this. They don't need Facebook. They don't pay Facebook. They've got their own Google. They've got their own Amazon. There's a Russian internet, which is Russian. So the whole idea of this connected, globalized, digital space will fragment. It's already fragmenting. So that also thinks, forces us to think about de-Americanization. And it's not just about governance. Essentially, it's about electronic commerce. As cloud computing becomes more important, as more and more people get online, who is in control of both infrastructure as well as software becomes very important. And it's interesting that the three major trade agreements that have been discussed often in, in, in secrecy, one has already been signed, um, the, the Trans-Pacific one, the, the TTIP, which is Europe and North America, and the third one, which is the most important and hardly anything written about it, is the new services uh, tra trade agreement. Because if everything is connected, who is in charge, who is in control of service industry becomes very important. And it's just maybe incidental but important to remind ourselves that all BRICS countries are excluded from these three very, very important, um, extremely important. Uh, negotiations. So in the coming years, that's going to be a debate. How, how do you deal with the internet? And my final point, and this is about the fact that despite reasonably consistent growth in many developing countries, Brazil, India, China, of course, um, they are still home to a large number of poor people. In fact, India has the largest proportion of global poverty in absolute numbers. And this whole development discourse, which really has emerged from the West, is increasingly being questioned, particularly by the Chinese example. That China has managed to raise 400 million people out of poverty in 20 years without major Upheaval. Okay, New York Times is not allowed. Doesn't matter. 
But 400 million people have been raised out of poverty. That is unprecedented in human history. That has never been achieved. India managed 200 million, but it's half, right? It's a great democracy. So then people are asking, okay, there is, maybe there's another model. Maybe state has a very important role. You can't leave it to the market. We've seen what happened in 2008. And I would remind you of a very interesting book which has been published this year by Princeton, uh, by Daniel Bell, who is an American professor based in uh, Tsinghua University in Beijing at the moment. And it talks about the China model. And he's not talking about the economics. He's talking about politics. So, something quite interesting is already happening about, um, as I say, reformulating this discourse. The discourse, discourse is extremely limited and it has proven to be not working. So something else has to be kind of brought on, on the table. And I think BRICS as a group, although, as I said earlier, there are all kinds of complications in their relationships between the nations, but also in their affiliations with other groups. But one thing which uh, unites them, I think, is their non-Euro-Atlantic you know, countries. And if they do provide something which is a, a different kind of model, so if you're sitting in Uganda and you have to make a choice between what the BBC is telling you about what's wrong with you guys and a constructive journalism that CCTV is giving you with a lot of resources, I'm not sure which way we will go. And I think that's an interesting kind of way to think about how um, this new <coughs> media order, world order, may emerge. And on that note, I'll stop. Thank you very much. So I hope you're